0: All right. Before we begin, yes. Before we begin, I just want you to, everybody, to take a deep breath ah, and then listen. Listen to the sound that you hear of how fucking awesome we are.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Slums Cast. I'm your co-host, Nora Panzer, and I am the Netrunner equivalent of getting to spoil the card's satellite uplink.
0: That's oddly specific. Hello, I'm Josh, aka Orbital Tangent. I'm still Netrunner's OKS player.
1: If you have any questions exactly where you are and what you're listening to, I can't help you with the first half, but I can tell you that this is a podcast about Netrunner, but it is not a podcast that is designed to make you better at Netrunner. It is also not a podcast designed to make you a better person, so... Just please know that going into the rest of this episode, there are a few things that you probably are interested in that we will be doing this episode, but the first and most important of those is that we have a special guest. Would you like to introduce our special guest, Josh?
0: Oh, yes, absolutely, I would. She's a designer for that Infinity N logo that you know and love, part of a band called the Window Smashing Job Creators. It's Zoe. Zoe, how the fuck you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for
1: having me on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. You know, Josh, one of the reasons that I'm extremely excited to having Zoe here is we have a few interesting new cards that are from the upcoming set to talk about. You might even say um, we have scoops to talk about.
0: Oh, scoops, audible gasp.
1: Scoops, scoops, scoops. And you scoops!
0: know... I- <sighs>
1: That that, that broke me. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: so obviously we are talking about scoops in this episode. I assume that you knew that clicking on the uh, title for this episode. It's right there in the title. We are going to get to those a little later in the episode. We forgot to say this last time we did scoops and I don't want to make the same mistake this time. So we will be posting the full text versions of the scoops we're not going to do that immediately so just stay tuned the full text versions will be coming but they you know you won't have them exactly right now when the episode releases but please do check out the show notes you can get the full art you can look at the art in its full glory see what it's going to look like when it's on the cards and please listen on because you will hear everything and also our interpretations of the cards and what we think about them as well and some stories about them behind the scenes Hi. One of the things that I want to make sure people know about scoops, I think there, there is a very common misconception out there about scoops, which is this idea that if you know a few cards a couple weeks before everyone else knows the cards, that means that you have a real advantage. I mean, it does mean that by the time everyone else hears this episode, we probably have had time to absorb the rules text of these cards. But I mean, if if you think that that means I can just sleeve up a deck and win an event with those cards, I mean, I get about it. Did you... Did you just fucking say baguette? I did. It's time for fucking baking up think gloves.
0: Uh, I don't approve.
1: Well, you don't have to. It is time for baking up think gloves. It is time for us to get to know Zoe a little bit better. Zoe, thank you for joining us. I think I speak for everyone in the audience saying, I would like to learn a little bit more about you as a person and an UpRunner player. So a natural question to ask about someone as an UpRunner player is, What's your favorite Netrunner card? I'm going to ask you a slightly different version of that question, though. Everyone kind of when they first start Netrunner, everyone has a first favorite Netrunner card. What was your first favorite Netrunner card, whether or not it's your current
2: favorite? Scorched Earth, and not that much has changed. (laughs) I, don't know. I I remember my first store championship And this was long long ago This was I think spin cycle era It was my first real tournament And I spent the entire day Just getting like blown up Every <laughs> round And by the end of it I was like I need to get my hands on this power <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait, It, it seems blows. like blowing up apartments is fun <laughs> Yeah
1: <laughs> The first real tournament I went to, there was one particular round. I was in complete control of that game. I was probably on five points at the time. My entire rig out was like running RD every single turn. And then one particular turn, you know, I end the turn and my opponent looks at me and asks, how much money are you want? And I just know at
2: that moment, like something terrible is about to happen. I don't know. Waylon, I don't know. This game is such a beautiful like blend of theme coming through naturally in gameplay mechanics and i do appreciate just how on like just such a core and basic level wayland captures the core essence of capitalism we're going to ask you to compete and if you start doing okay at competing we're just going to put a gun in your face and then say that you couldn't compete
0: oh no
2: (laughs) shit you're not
0: wrong
1: (laughs) yeah no that's 100% correct i guess i'm curious so you said not much has changed since then is would you say that Scorched Earth is still your favorite card, or or have there been other meat damage cards that have come along since then that you like more?
2: My favorite way to kill people in Netrunner now isn't a meat damage card, at mm. least not on its own. But I love a uh, Neurospike Compose, forking people with City Works Neurospike.
0: <laughs> oh no! Oh know, no! The core
2: like Wayland and Anarch uh, affinity have remained. <laughs> that was part of what was like so exciting for me about uh, this set. Not getting too far ahead of ourselves, but this was the first expansion that I was a member of the design team for. Mm-hmm. And my first assignment was to sketch out the basics of a Wayland pitch. And mm-hmm. I was so excited to, and we've got some nasty, destructive things in store. We will definitely have to ask you about that more because we
1: know what Wayland's doing a little bit during this set. And it very much looks like Wayland is up to the old tricks in this set. My hope is the old tricks with a new spin. Don't, don't want to jump into that too quickly. I think it's like any good piece of meat. We want to roast it. We want to make sure that we we really build up the tension and uh, and marinate and all of that good stuff. Homestyle Netrunner spoilers, low and slow. Mm-hmm. Got to braise those. Mm-hmm. On that note, what is your favorite ID?
2: Okay, so you could probably have guessed this from the last question, but um, Ob Super Heavy Logistics is definitely, it's at least my favorite corp ID when i was playing magic i remember thinking about how cool birthing pod was is and i don't know on the design end for this also i you know kind of thought about how like sacrifice engine and decks can always be really fun and netrunners foremost one is pawn shop but we've got some nice destructive options on the other side of the fence and then favorite runner is probably zahaya I really enjoyed Gabe early on, and, and I feel like this is a I don't know, really nice way to make that play pattern more dynamic and reflect the modern design philosophy while still capturing that fundamental, like, I'll give this to a new player and they will understand that they gotta go. They gotta get accesses.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like how she works with multi axis It's such a simple ability, but it naturally leads you to kind of want to discover different things to maximize its uh, utility. Does this work with Maker's Eye, how I think it works? It does?
2: What? And I feel like as soon as people, you know, start doing even just like Gateway Constructed and they get that interaction with Jailbreak, like the gears start to turn.
1: I have not had a chance to play with Ob yet, but I think it's the sort of idea that you can't possibly look at it and not start thinking of, okay, what ridiculous stuff am I going to do?
2: No, absolutely. It is an open-ended question with uh, so many different answers. Yeah, you're not just doing all of the other, like you know, considerations that you're doing now. You're also building a sacrifice chain. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I find super cool about it is.
1: Unlike in Magic, unlike Birthing Pod, like you just explained, Birthing Pod has a pretty high upper limit of, like you can kind of cheat something more expensive into play and then get something less expensive based off of that than you're quote unquote supposed to be able to. The same isn't true in Netrunner. You're not constrained with number of turns equals highest cost thing that I can get. You can probably do some even crazier things in Netrunner than you could in something like Magic.
2: Yeah, this is definitely less focused on like rampant acceleration and more focused on being toolboxy.
0: I gotta say, I love how the the theme ties into this though. Ob being a just just a big nasty boat, you can't even really tell what it's doing, but it looks like a mobile oil rig slash mining boat. They're like a shipping company, right? When they do the trashing, the result is them shipping to you minus a little off the top.
2: Thanks. I'm so glad that comes through. And yeah, OB is definitely inspired by, like, if either of you are familiar with the Mortal Engine series, is mm. just the, you know, these mm. vast cities on tank treads that just like roll through, to taking just like giant scoops of the landscape, completely oh. indiscriminate and just sorting through everything thing later, or er, as both like a mega predator and a scavenger. And that's definitely kind of the vibe we're going for with this big, mm. horrible shit. Oh, that's really yeah. cool.
0: Yeah, for sure. And the tagline being um, extract, export, Excel. I'm a big fan. This is really good.
2: Yeah, I'm so glad I can finally talk about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're going to stay in the same theme, but I'm going to ask you a slightly different end of the, of the spectrum on this question, which is what is your favorite quote unquote bad ID? Why is it an ID that you find so
2: compelling despite the fact that it's quote unquote bad? I don't know. Standouts for me. It are honestly the ones that i've seen become pet cards for people that i know people in my meta because like mm. i'm i'm not really that person i do usually like you know start with something that's like a strong established archetype and just you know do tweaking for my expectations of the meta and my play style but there are a lot of folks who are a bit more experimental around me who have have gone mm. like super deep kit or next design mm. or even heel which uh Which is very ambitious and it makes me happy to see people like over the course of uh, months and really refine this thing like not, you know, not being super worried about like the the big competitive meta picture as much as like this is their blade and they're going to hone it as finely as they can. Mm.
1: Next design is such a cool idea. It's so, so cool, I
2: think. The promise of, like, the rush, the quick start, it's, like, right there. And also it's, mm-hmm. you know, not, like, consistent enough to be, like, a, a really good deck. Like, I don't know, it came out around, around the same time as Andromeda, and one of those is much friendlier than the other in terms <laughs> yeah. of, like, you know, getting your value. But that promise is there, and I find that exciting.
0: This is a deep cut. Uh, their handle was NordRunner. was a oh, big yeah. proponent of Next Design, and I find myself, every time I look at Next Design, agreeing with him when he says when you get those three installs and it goes off perfectly and you get to draw up those other three cards, it's the best ID in the game. But the problem is
2: you only get that a certain percentage of the time. And of course, optimizing for that percentage starts pulling you away from other deck building constraints. Unfortunately, you just kind
1: of end up in a situation where you have to run at least as much ice as like an ag Fusion deck does. But you don't get the same level of reward unless you get those first three clicks.
0: If it was like Andromeda where you just drew like three extra cards? Yeah, no, (laughs) like that'd
2: be nuts. That'd be be ridiculous. Uh, Corp Moles for eight? (laughs)
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: I worry that if you had Corp Moles for eight, it would just become the ID that you use for like the 24-7 boom combo, right? Just like,
2: oh, Oh, I get an extra three cards to look for the... (laughs) Yeah, also, the more we push this towards Corp Andromeda, the further we get away from balance. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
0: so that was spicy. Putting on a dry rub, so to speak. That's convenient, because we
1: actually have a very quick installment of another segment. The Beef Zone, in
0: fact. The Beef Zone. You were talking about braising before.
1: It's generally always on our mind on this podcast, but as everyone knows who listens to the Slumscast, the Beef Zone is a segment where we ask the question, what would win in a fight? But we're asking a slightly different version of that today. You play music, you were in a band, and I think that yeah. that makes you qualified to answer a few musical questions here. What I would like to know is, which Netrunner character do you think would win a musical
2: fight or a battle of the bands? just like sorting through some of the possibilities here i'm sure noise is an entrant but mm-hmm. i don't know at the end of the uh, day he is a dj uh, and the battle of the bands format doesn't really favor it. i don't think we've clearly established max playing anything but max is the essence of, uh, of punk rock right and yeah. i kind of have <laughs> to i kind of have to go with max although i feel like there are probably also shapers out there making in beautiful atmospheric music you know, really fascinating uh, experimental music, mind bending prog with uh, complicated math uh, behind mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I'm thinking Lot with that. I feel like Lot would be an incredible jazz musician. Ooh. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. There you I, go. I'd buy that, honestly. Right, yeah. this, this is my new take, I guess, is that Shaper is jazz. The whole point is just that you have this pre existing set of like knowledge, you have this deep toolkit. And you don't know exactly what's going to happen. You just go into the situation and improvise and beautiful music comes out.
0: I was getting from that when you said Prague, I was getting, you know, Shaper is tool,
2: but (laughs) uh, I guess I'll take jazz too. I mean, I mean, it definitely works that uh, route too. I don't know. I guess I'd take Soen if I was going to pick a Prague band. But
1: The jazz comparison definitely makes sense with that to me. Like, you never know exactly what note you're going to need to play. You never know exactly what number of cards you're going to need to have in your hand at the end of the turn, et cetera.
2: <laughs> yeah, but you look at what's going on around you and, and you try to just like slide into that, uh, yeah. is that a situation. By that logic, wouldn't
1: that be like minimalist tonal music or something? Because you, you want to have as little going on as
2: possible, so you always get that credit. Oh, I can see that, Yeah there's definitely like experimental music that feels a shaper and experimental music that feels anarch. Cause I also feel like there's so much like noise is music and stuff. that's very anarch. Mm-hmm. Criminal. I don't know. Criminal rights for the pop charts. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Laramie They're
0: smooth Fisk criminals.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Laramie Fisk definitely has a dad rock band that like you, you he uses <laughs> it. He pulls that out at like investor events.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it turns out uh, Temple of the Dog still exists, and uh, one of the members that rotates in and out is Laramie Fisk. <laughs> oh my god. Is this why Khan I'm going
1: hungry. These- <laughs> is this why Khan has all of the bird breakers? Is Khan the eagles? Oh,
0: oh fuck! God. <laughs> oh, that's... Oh, oh, that's cruel, though. Uh, I mean, putting putting the eagles under, like, Pop like
2: syrupy pop is like,
1: <laughs> come on, man.
2: I'm still on Laramie Fisk. I'm stuck now imagining him doing basically the Huey Lewis and the News American Psycho bit. Oh my God, except about his own band. Yes. <laughs> Fuck both of you. Oh my God.
1: <laughs> I'm dying over here. <laughs> I'm here thinking, like, Rite of Spring, which literally caused a riot in real life. I'm, that seems very Raina to me.
2: Also, Raina, I feel like you have, I don't know, so much tradition also of liberation folk music, which, Ooh. I don't know, this is something <laughs> that I think about a lot, is we, like, arguably live in, you know, a cyberpunk dystopia already, but not everything is defined by our contemporary technology. And like, mm-hmm. I know, especially like I'm in a folk-punk band, and I think that there's there's always going to be this impulse to make art that pulls in the opposite direction. Mm. We've already uh, revealed Sable. I don't know. There's this very like old and new intersection of uh, Sable as this, you know, very refined and violin tr- and player with some amount of like classical background or training. The art form is the same, but the world is different.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I feel like on the one hand, there's definitely that. And on the other hand, when I think about traditional music now, I have to realize that, you know, in a couple hundred years, who knows what the canon is going to be. <laughs> I can't help but imagining a horrifying future where hip-hop is constrained to the academy and, and the mm-hmm. ivory tower the way jazz is today. Oh, God, no. They're going to miss <laughs> Look, the point it, sound, it It sounds deeply horrifying, but like...
1: Sh- it's very plausible, though. On that note of like uh, of of horrifying things related to music, I think we might have already listed a few candidates here. But in the beef zone today, we have a bonus steak tip. Whose concert would you least want to attend in the Netrunner universe?
2: Oh, that's a good one. I mean, at the same time, I kind of have to say Sable again because I'm sure I will be mesmerized, ne- and that puts me in such a vulnerable position. Yep, that's fair. You're, <laughs> you're going to become the mark. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh no oh that's thematic i don't think noise is would put on a particularly great set but like i think wild side would still be incredibly fun so yeah (laughs) like i would still go to that show i feel that
0: noise wouldn't like put on a great set that you want to actively listen to all dude is there for is to get the club bumping the walls shaking and to drop the bass a couple of times while everybody kind of literally wilds out
2: yeah, exactly. So like I don't know, he might not be the best musician in in our uh future universe, but that, that show sounds like a vibe. Look at the art of the nihilist. They are having a great time. Yeah, what um Squarey Princess has referred to as the universal DJ pose. <laughs> yep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but come on, like nobody's actually listening to what Dude's playing. I don't know. They're grinding up on their date, like they're People
1: having fun. I bet at some point, you know, someone's gonna record some video of shenanigans during the night, and then like someone on the, the cyberpunk equivalent of Twitter is going to look at it and be like, Oh, you know, that it's actually a pretty good fade from that song into that song. But that's like the, <laughs> that's the most attention anyone's gonna to pay to be the
0: Reddit
1: <laughs> <laughs> post. Yeah. <laughs> oh like, poor I, noise. I, I, I don't know we were supposed to be watching this part of the video, but like, did anyone hear that? <laughs> <laughs>
2: There's so much room for weird subcultural moments in this future. And it's like, I want to know what 200 years from now is equivalent of Goths Raven under a bridge is going to be. Hell yeah. I'm here
0: for it. You know, I have an answer for this. What I'm not here for is uh, Laramie Fest's version of Temple of the Dog.
2: Oh, Yeah. yeah. I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, that's that was a pretty strong candidate to begin with. I think.
2: No, you're right. That's a good point. Like between Sable and Laramie Fisk, like either one of those, I'm probably leaving without my wallet. I might as well at least mm-hmm. have a good time during
0: the concert. He's probably also going to stop at some point, or even worse, inject him into a song. Something that's trying to get you to invest in cryptocurrency. Just just think of it for a second. Like,
2: (laughs) I'm going to invest in Dogecoin. (laughs) No. Opening for him sounds like a fucking nightmare. (laughs) When do we get paid? You get paid in Dogecoin. (laughs) Oh, no. No. (laughs) No. That's dark. That's really dark.
0: (laughs) I might have beef with him after that. Pants, we didn't bring Zoe on here to talk about garbage opening acts and garbage bands. Shouldn't we be talking about cards, design, designing cards? We probably should. Do, do we have a segment that works for that? I Well, so you could think of designers as like the enforcers of the playstyles that mm-hmm. are available in the game. So uh, Enforcer 1.0.
1: Enforcer 1.0. No, we're we're not doing enforcer 1.0. Have some respect Aww. for our guest, Josh. Not enforcer <laughs> 1.0. We have a member of the design team here today. Chiefs model Bioroids? Yep, fine by me. Sure. <laughs> Chiefs model Bioroids. <laughs>
0: Okay, so this week on um, Jeeves Model Biroids, since we have the opportunity to talk (laughs) to someone who's involved in creating Netrunner, we wanted to spend some time asking how you think about designing Netrunner. So we're going to start off a little bit broad. Do you have a personal game design philosophy? And if so, what be that?
2: I wouldn't say that I have like, you know, like game design manifesto or anything like that, but I've definitely found um, certain sensibilities is that I don't seem to pervade my work and work for me. I think part of it, especially when it comes to Netrunner is a lot of the like, a lot of the base beauty of this game comes from the interconnection of mechanics and theming. And so my design process is very kind of like top down and narratively informed. So this is a very interdisciplinary approach that it's probably also informed by just me working on like four different teams because I do design, development, narrative, and illustration. Creatives deeply like entwined in the design process from the very beginning and in general kind of looking for this thing where we find like one relatively simple way to express a like core narrative concept and then in turn that narrative can help with comprehension of specific cards and their relation to each other. So if we have one strong metaphor at the middle like everything else kind of blooms
1: I'd like to ask a question on seeing that in action. So as you point out, Netrunner does have this very close linking of of narrative and theme and actual cards and card designs. Are there specific aspects of that that you like the most? Like what are some of your favorite things about Netrunner specifically
2: getting to really link those two things together? I think that we start from just like a an extraordinary foundation just the process of explaining the base rules mm. to someone and like you see that the game communicates a certain understanding of that world and that tapping into that worldview in turn opens up comprehension for a lot of other things that might be kind of imposing yeah but like some specific things here and um, the anarch cards are as we've you know we've got the sabotage mechanic and we've got a focus on core damage is and so from that sort of spans this wide range of variations on this theme of risking risking your safety and sacrificing yourself for something that you believe is bigger and more important than yourself.
1: Yeah, which is an interesting you know, we've seen this core damage idea before and it doesn't always have that theme. So these mechanics are big and
2: they're wide enough to have multiple interpretations like that. I know, it's important to me that as we continue to develop Anarch, or if we examine in themes that are you know, just as fiery and passionate that if they if they look at self-destruction as part of it, it's not always nihilistic. A lot of it is mm. purposeful. A lot of it is people choosing what the most important thing in the world is and then acting like that is true.
0: Mm. I can see that. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that um, you see in like protest circles is the idea of... Putting yourself, your body, between the danger and those you're trying to protect, that's not nihilistic at all. That's that's simply accepting the fact that if I do this, if I interpose between these two forces, I may get hurt, and I may get hurt irrevocably, but
2: I'm okay with that. Yeah, and I feel like it's very easy to you know have this very outside surface level interpretation of these things as— first and foremost, focused on destruction. I think we're more interested in communicating the idea that if you want to change the world, that's going to change you back. I mean, take the
1: card StimHack. In my opinion, that's the way that StimHack was actually used in-game matches this theme better than, like, I'm on drugs. It is super important for me to be able to run this remote right now. That is the most important thing in the world. I don't care if it hurts me down the line. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like there's, yeah, so much mechanical strength and beauty there there that has in the past been ignored for, you know, these aspects of, uh, especially like, you know, some of like punk and Erica subcultures that are that are there, but that I think we have way more interesting ways to talk about once we have that context. I feel like it's easy to, you know, oh, have this outside look at, you know, oh, these people are taking this, these people are, are doing drugs, things, things. there must not be a strong thing at the center of that or it must be for its own sake i don't know there's a lot of great art that i think has been made about things that we need to do to cope with with understanding with being in this world and also understanding how this world works because i feel like you know systematic understanding of power also naturally creates this feeling of powerlessness mm-hmm. is that most reactions that are strong enough to overcome that are going to be extreme.
1: It, it certainly benefits people in power as well to paint people who are on the side of protest as being nihilistic or being just in it for destruction as well. So
0: we, we can't with that too. I would also posit that anybody who says by any means I'm going to accomplish my goal is by definition somebody who is not nihilistic about the goal they're trying to accomplish. That argument that because I accept something that made it be destructive to my person, that I don't
2: care about anything, that doesn't make sense. And that sort of like interchange between like the common surface level narratives and the things that happen once you start to, uh, you know, sit down and think about, you know, being in the shoes of somebody who's willing to take those risks. And it's like, yeah, the narrative kind of breaks down. But one of the things we focus on a lot here is the propaganda efforts where it's used to uh, used to perpetuate these perceptions. Yeah.
0: NBN and uh, the flavor text that I really liked on Azov, don't worry, directors, security is always willing to send agents to assist in radical asset reassignment. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing false flag operations. It's that
1: corporate speak, right? Radical asset realignment. You read that in a document, you're like, huh, I mean, that didn't sound so bad. How radical could it be? It's assets. It's not like we're blowing up
2: ships or anything. What?
1: No. Who would even?
2: Yeah. And I feel like, so a lot of the discussion around tactics and optics is going to be, you know, featuring a lot of the fiction that releases with this set as well. The other like really strong, like narrative mechanical tie I wanted to talk about is Incriminal because I, I feel really awesome about the mark mechanic. This is a very kind of top down design. Sable is a pattern analyst. Is Sable sees patterns that other people don't, don't, and sees opportunities that other people don't. Is always, you know, in a position to kind of, you know, pivot or improvise based on um, whatever handhold they can find because they are, are, of course, on the run from the mob. Having Sable have this uh, mark mechanic, where opportunities will always be presenting themselves, but you won't know in advance where. Mm. It just feels like it feels like it speaks to that feeling while also just providing a very dynamic gameplay experience. Yeah,
1: because there's this element of randomness. I mean, part of the the mark mechanic here is, you know, a random central server can't become your mark. You can end up putting yourself in a position where the opportunity is also in the most dangerous place, which makes a lot of sense with the character backstory you just laid out too. Absolutely.
2: One of the things that I appreciate about Stable, so are either of you all uh, fighting games people at all? Full disclosure, a total scrub, but I am like, you know, uh, finally uh, getting into the genre. Oh, cool. And, yeah. and have really enjoyed playing Faust in Guilty Gear Strive, who is a just random item throw character. Mm. And there is something to me very appealing about this dynamic of, no, I don't know quite what's going to happen, but your reads are impossible because I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> and we are both going to be thrown into an unpredictable situation, and I'm going to be better acclimated to that uncertainty than you are.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: okay, I can dig it. The focus becomes being able to react quickly and being able to identify opportunities quickly, more so than just raw
2: memorizing mechanics perfectly. Exactly. And memorizing frame data and all of that. This is a great example of why I do really value randomness in games. like. As much as, you know, oh, people sometimes have this, I feel like, bias towards wanting everything to be more chess-like because there's this regard that that long-term intricate planning is the peak of mastery. And oh, there are just so many other ways for games to be, yeah, and the fact that those, like, trails of decision upon decision upon decision into the future instead have these stopping points where you have to recognize key pieces of uncertainty, it makes that, like, long-term cognitive load easier while... Not making the game easier, but instead just asking something very different from you.
0: In some ways, that allows you to display your mastery to an even higher degree. Because if you look at one of my favorite games is Slay the Spire and also Monster Train. The best players of that game, what they're able to do is make decisions in the moment without knowing things prior uh, about what's going to come in the game. And mm-hmm. the, the best players are still weighing those uncertainties and they're going, okay, this is what I need to beat the next fight. But the three fights after that, is this going to make my deck terrible? If it is, then maybe I don't need this. Maybe I can work with something else. I think one of one of the things that the mark mechanic might do and, and that it might display is, okay, it's risky to run this mark right now, but... I get x y and z and maybe it pays off a couple of turns down the line i I think that that's like a really interesting randomness mechanic that will kind of test your ability to assess the future almost and your chances Mm -hmm. on certain other things happening which
2: roguelikes do you definitely have hit on some of my favorite games and there and it is an absolute joy to watch like high level monster train play for that reason on that note, so
1: we, we've touched on this a little bit, I think, already, but if you had to pick one, maybe, what do you think is the most challenging
2: thing about designing Netrunner? I mean, I would say that the most challenging thing about uh, Netrunner is, I don't know, just that it's a modular game. Every piece you design has interactions with every other piece. is, mm-hmm. And so just the consequences of, of your decisions proliferate really far down the line. And in that respect, it's a I don't know, it's a more challenging kind of game design than in other projects I've taken on in the past, where just the number of components and the amount of combinations are smaller. I guess I'm actually really curious related to that. I
1: kind of worded it in in the notes doc here slightly differently from the question I'm gonna ask. So uh, I might stumble over this, but do you find that there tend to be certain factions that are more or less difficult to design for that reason? Or is, that, is it really more about specific packages of cards than it is about factions?
2: I think it's more about specific packages of cards in that respect. I do think different factions pose different difficulty, but it's more they pose different difficulty for different designers because yeah, I don't know, all of us have factions that we resonate less or more strongly with. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing Wayland is one that resonates pretty strongly with you. Yeah, Willand and Anarch were like, you know, when I joined the design yeah. team, those were the things that I was most excited to, you know, put my stamp on. Hell yeah. <laughs> I,
0: I get the sense that you just, uh, you really enjoy
2: fucking shit up, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I just appreciate the amount of empathy that these archetypes take. You really need to be able to sit yourself down, look across to your opponent, put yourself in their shoes, and say to yourself, if I were you, what would ruin my day? <laughs>
1: I love that weaponized empathy. What would be the worst thing in the world for you right now? Okay, let's do that.
0: It reminds me of something that uh Ajar said, which was when he was trying to teach me how to play his deck, he said, You gotta be an asshole. No, 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 don't be an asshole to your opponent. Be nice, be polite, you know, treat them well because they're human and they deserve it. Don't be an asshole with your words or your your out-of-game actions, but in the game, be as much of an asshole as you can think to be. The most annoying actions that you can take in the moment, those are the ones you should take. Having sparred with you and Melvin playing
2: CTM, I can say y'all definitely learned that lesson well. (laughs) (laughs) No, and I feel like it's definitely one of those things where I think that's also kind of just like core-to-core play in general, Mm -hmm. and I feel like a lot of people when they're first sitting down with this game, they see runner and corp and they say offense and defense. No, as corp, your goal is to be the bully. Your goal is to set the terms on which everything operates. Your goal is to put an impossible uh, situation in front of your opponent and then laugh in their face because they uh, they can't uh, do what you're asking them to.
1: Then there are going to be points in the game where just you are put in that position as well.
2: So. Absolutely. And so it's much more like, I don't know, for people who are used to the dynamic of like aggro versus control, it's much more, uh, this is much more just trying to wrest control of the pace from their person. Yeah. It also, you know, really does mean that it pays huge dividends to, you know, play both sides, play the archetypes that you are, have, are struggling the most against that experience informing your play. I don't know. It feels really special to me.
1: Agreed. On that note, Zooming in slightly, kind of moving into to to the micro level of how to create situations like that. And I know that this is a slightly unfair question as I'm about to ask it. So I apologize in advance, but what do you think is the best netrunner card if you had to choose one? And here I'm I'm not asking best in terms of power level. I'm not asking what's the most powerful card. I'm thinking best in terms of what you think is a card that does good things for the game.
2: I'm gonna use the word favorite because I feel like that's a I don't know, a less imposing way to class this. And Mm -hmm. because I'm going to pick a card that's just a little over the curve, Mm -hmm. I absolutely love Bravado. Mm -hmm. That one was designed before I joined the design team and just like, you know, when I joined Dev and I saw that card, I was just like, oh, this this is me all over. Because it just like, it keeps the game tempo accelerating while also encouraging risks to be taken. And and I feel like that combination of like, you know, really encouraging people to take a chance and smash into each other while also not letting all the air out of the ball is like a really nice combination. Cause I feel like sometimes the most like confrontational cards we have uh, can sometimes slow the game and like diversion of funds is a great example. I'm not going to say account siphon and did nothing wrong. There is some stuff with that card, but, (laughs) but one thing that I do really appreciate about, about account siphon is that it, net injected more resources into the game and it created this big dramatic confrontation and gave momentum on the way out of and that that to me feels very important as opposed to you know the diversion of uh, funds and that does sort of in general draw resources out of the game and slow the pace i like things that create that opportunity to take a risk and get ahead But that no matter how they play out they push things forward and i think that's a design philosophy that that part is pretty universal carries to basically every like facet of design i describe it there but i think it's like a core facet of like rpg design especially like i don't know one of the biggest things that differentiates a good rpg from a bad one is whether you are choosing between interesting success and interesting failure or whether you're choosing between something and nothing it ain't happening. As a
0: DM, I've, I've always heard from the real good DMs is you should let your party fail forward. Say you come up to a lock and you've got to get a certain role and your player just fails. But it's essential to this game that you get through this door. There's no other way to advance the plot. You're not doing anything if that first action to uh, open the lock didn't work and you just have them keep rolling dice. It's much better to instead do something like, oh, you got a five on this roll. Well, you do open the door because we need you to to advance the plot, but you break your thieves' tools. You're basically advocating with Bravado, like you're gonna get this money because it's gonna advance the game, but maybe you break your thieves tools.
2: Yeah. Or or your face, you hit an nancy <laughs> Or your face, yeah. <laughs> No, absolutely. And going down the RPG rabbit hole just a little bit more, like, again, it's one of those things where, like, you can have that as GM advice, but you can also have things like Powered by the Apocalypse that systematize that. Mm -hmm. That make it a core trait of failure, that it pushes the story forward in the way that resolution works. And so I feel like it's one of those things like, and this is one where tabletop uh, RPGs are a bit different from um, card games, games in that. To some extent, I see that PBTA mechanic as teaching people how to GM by creating, you know, these sort of like guidelines that as you continue doing this, you just learn things about about GMing successfully. And I feel like it's one of those things, like, because these choices are a lot less subjective in in a card game, that can be a bit different. But that same idea of wanting to, like, funnel people towards momentum is important. And again, I feel like this is something that exists in so many different kinds of game design. And this will be the last time I return to Guilty Gear Strive. But just something (laughs) about it that I really enjoy is that your meter basically always expands as long as you're like advancing or attacking. And just everything about this game, um, for better and for worse, is very much about creating this big anime fight collision in the middle (laughs) and discouraging passivity. Yeah, And I feel like There are probably people who are way deeper on fighting games who have very complicated opinions about that that I'm simply not qualified for as someone who's fairly new to fighting games. But as a game dev in general, I see that like, yeah, you want to guide people towards the uh, aspects of the game that are the most fun and exciting.
1: Mm. Okay. Yeah. Kind of similar to like a glory kill in Doom where you were encouraging people to be proactive and not hide behind cover. No, get out there. Hit them with the chainsaw. Yeah, absolutely. The glory <laughs> killing
2: doom, of the rally mechanic, and Bloodborne. Aggression oh. is not the be all end all of interaction, but pushing people to take that risk feels important.
0: So, speaking of advancement, taking risks, things of that nature, we would be remiss if we didn't ask a question similar to what we asked June when she was on. So, to wrap up this segment, you don't have to reveal anything in specific. We're not trying to dig for more scoops or anything like that. But yes. what is your vision for Netrunner? Where do you personally think the game should go like over the next five years and the next couple of years? What are your philosophies that you would hope to bring to it?
2: There are two parts of this. The, the straightforward part is that I'd say simplicity is an important part of my design philosophy. Borealis is... A much more ambitious and experimental set than gateway was as it's you know to use archaic magic terminology it's an expert level expansion not a mm. not a beginner expansion and i'd say that my scoping in terms of like mechanical complexity is a little bit less ambitious than that i'm i'm someone who's very like into clean designs i don't know and a lot of this for me is talking is then thinking about, okay, if this is narratively driven, what are the most important things to talk about in cyberpunk and in sci-fi? What mm-hmm. can we do to start there? I mean, for me, so a big part of it, when I think about cyberpunk, I think one of the big risks of doing this genre uh, is for it to become a form of retrofuturism. Mm-hmm. Not that retrofuturism isn't a fun aesthetic at all, but you know the classics of cyberpunk uh, speak to a specific societal context that has changed. Consequently, I think that there's a lot of like newer science fiction in that either is cyberpunk or cyberpunk adjacent that we don't necessarily like think about with these same, I don't know, that doesn't quite match the same neon sunglasses, skull jacks uh, uh, situation. In, but that gives us really meaningful lens into what cyberpunk can, you know, the extent of what cyberpunk can talk about. I'm going to give brief spoilers for the, um, For Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents series. So the whole first book is spent in this wasteland of collapse, uh, this desperate pilgrimage north from um, California to to escape poverty, riots, and climate devastation. And we spend this whole time just classifying this as a post-apocalyptic or at least apocalyptic uh, setting. And in the second book parable of the talents we get our first glimpse at the privileged life that some people still live and we realize that most of the population of the world is living in post apocalyptic sci-fi while a few people are living in cyberpunk hmm.
1: Shit.
2: and <laughs> damn and the series is you know eerily prescient in so many ways is but i think that that specific idea of like you know the future is here the crisis is here it's just not evenly distributed is really important and mm-hmm. when we look at what some of those, like, essential crises are that I think are, like, rich narrative veins to, uh, you know, inspire an entire expansion, entire story, like, I look at a lot of biopunk and ecopunk as important and uh, influences, because climate change in our co- and its consequences are some of the most pressing issues of our time. And I feel like it's common for cyberpunk stories to kind of ignore this in their vision of the future or hand wave it away with science magic. And I think that's even something that, you know, past Netrunner has done. Those things are largely throwing away some of our most relevant stories, ideas, and questions so that stale ones can be maintained at the surface level cyberpunk and look and feel don't change too much. And I think that we can do so much better and more exciting things than that. If I think we can look at, you know, the writing of like, like Margaret Atwood, Paolo Bacigalupi, you know, really start looking at futures that do still have all of uh, this kind of tech, all of these themes that we're exploring, but that are informed by the crises of our times. Yeah, I look at books like Big, Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam trilogy, I look at you know Paolo Bacigalupi's body of work and I feel like these do some really extraordinary things that we kind of struggle to otherwise which is to consider the consequences of climate change in a way that is not just jumping to the end of humanity because Rome wasn't burned in a day. Climate
1: collapse wouldn't happen instantaneously and it certainly wouldn't happen instantaneously for everyone.
2: Yeah, and so a lot of the Borealis cycle themes are engaged with this. We are in the frozen, but not nearly as frozen as it's supposed to be north. We have a thing
0: for that. In fact, if we're going to talk about Borealis, I would like to transition us to a new segment.
1: Oh, I've I've got a good one. I'm thinking that a huge part of what we're talking about here is the way that we transmit memories and therefore i think Uh, akamatsu memchip would be a fantastic no no
0: no 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 pants pants, no
1: can we just can we just start playing the segment intro and maybe it'll change your mind no it didn't change my mind oh god damn okay fine um well uh in um what other segment could we use for this Oh, here, I've, I've got a good one. Uh, in in honor of how uh, Josh treats Akamatsu Memchip, um, an offer you can't refuse. I'll allow it.
0: An offer you can't
1: refuse. So this week on An Offer You Can't Refuse, we are offering our listeners a trip directly to the Arctic Circle. And before you ask, no, you can't refuse the trip just pack wisely. Midnight Sun is coming up very soon. We've already been hearing about it a little bit. And before we talk about the specific cards that we have to discuss from Midnight Sun, we wanted to talk more about the set as a whole. We've already heard a little bit about the creative inspirations for Midnight Sun, which I think are some of the most interesting things. I mean, the setting here, the part of the world that it's located in are, in my opinion, one of the most striking parts of the set. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Did the setting influence the design in any specific or interesting ways? Are there parts of this part of the world that ended up inspiring cards or mechanics or ways that cards interacted together?
2: Oh, absolutely. Because we're sort of trying to capture three basic locations, starting at very North, North America, moving through Mm -hmm. the water, through the oceans, the Arctic Circle, and also landing at the Siberian megacity um, is also kind of central to like it's where nbn operates their provdivost consulting division out of we want to have a very like rugged feel to the stuff that is sort of out in the world and a i guess a bit of a sense of remove for the manipulators and money movers and more abstract uh, connected players we've also done a lot to communicate both aspects of the natural world that we find beautiful aspects of maritime and nautical technology that are fascinating and exciting, and pieces of culture, folklore, and history for the greater, uh, I guess in this case, the former Russian Federation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so pulling from a vast vein of history and culture there, my favorite of which unfortunately I cannot talk about yet. Ooh, I don't think. Yeah, no, my absolute favorite. Oh, we're going to have to wait for our uh, helium for that. But there's so much that we've done both to pull on like large and small cultural uh, I don't know, cultural indicators. We have uh, literary uh, references that are that draw in Russian literature. i you know, look into the musical history as well and just kind of really pull from everywhere. They're taking inspirations from everything from horrific destructive mining operations to the simple beauty of a well-prepared cup of coffee.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And I like how well some of the natural world theming dovetails with kind of classic Netrunner terminology theming. Probably my favorite example of that is deep dive, where when I first heard deep dive, I was like, oh, so this is like diving deep into a server. That's cool. And then you look at the art and
2: no, it's literally the ocean. <laughs> yeah. And this is one of the things that I love about this aspect of cyberpunk, the sort of you know, hallucinatory and abstract nature of dead space is it hits almost this like weird fiction place where like what is the metaphor or the signifier and what is the signified really start to blend together. The world of computers is a world full of metaphors, mm-hmm. and this world really allows them to escape their figurative context.
0: I uh, actually was going to point out Deep Dive is not just the ocean. It's the ocean in net space. That is a really kind of cool thing about net space is that you do get to play with metaphor that net space just by its nature and the setting is kind of whatever the viewer or the experiencer sees in their mind's eye that's a neat thing to be able to get to play with so did you have any goals or any thoughts about how net space should look or feel with particular factions
2: so kind of drawing the link between in the depths of net space and the depths of the ocean, trying to create a feeling of different ecosystems, some shallower, some deeper in interconnection with each other. And so, for example, Jinteki is very focused on closer to the surface marine life, as we've already seen in with things like anemone. The things that you are uncovering as Jinteki are maybe closer to the surface than the, well, to use the phrase again, deep diving of HB, they explore new depths of literal and figurative pressure Hmm. we have the deep sea shark
1: (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah. that's very cool that was one thing that definitely struck me just from even the booster pack itself already seeing kind of different depths of the ocean being explored just from that by itself so we're definitely seeing that already and with some of the cards that we've seen spoiled obviously we have the cats there floating on the surfaces we're getting all parts of the ocean here too
2: That card warms my sentimental little heart so much. The art is so fire. Yeah, it's full of various Nisei member and playtester cats. And it was done by
0: Cat Shen.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so we had a huge bunch of references that we dropped there of various playtester members. Cats, some of them got (laughs) communicated straight away. Some of them got, you know, kind of combined and artistic license was used. But the flavor text does also memorialize my cat Jonesy, who passed away about a year ago. Oh, you know, it's a sad memory, but it really warms my heart to like see this art come in and be like, oh, there she is.
1: Yeah. It's it's a good memorial. So cool. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I didn't realize that, that that card was actually
0: that important to a lot of people. Wow. Just as a quick aside, that's like super cool. I know Morgan's initial goal with the card was just to put their cat in the game <laughs> but but like the fact that became a memorialization like a group um not effort what's the word i'm looking for group photo but a good yeah. memory of everybody's cats and like if there's a cat that somebody else has that has similar markings you get to kind of wonder which one of our
2: cats is that that's so cool I really appreciate that Morgan took that incredibly understandable feeling and, you know, decided to generalize it and do something that really celebrates our community and all of the people who have put their time and energy into this and all of the animals that have in turn kept us going.
0: That's really super fucking cool. Wow. Little things like that get me sometimes with... with uh... I think this actually segues well. I'm trying to complete the thought here, but I don't even know how to complete it. But I was going to say there's little touches here and there with design and art and narrative that I don't know, like they get me like, I don't know how to describe this. But it's like this thing about this game and this community that I just I can't get enough of. I don't know if I'm really making any sense here. But when you see that little reaching out or that little bit of empathy, it's like magical to me. I don't know. That's so fucking cool. I see I, I can't get over
2: this. That really makes me happy to hear. And I think it's been one of those things with the kind of like origins that we've had and the experience that we've gained as a group. I feel like, you know, from the very start, this has been a labor of love. And that's people have wanted to you know, really capture all, everything they love and communicate it there. And as we've gotten larger, more experienced, more professional, whatever the fuck that means, that doesn't mean that that heart goes away. That just means that we find better ways of expressing it that, that can hopefully bring everyone into that feeling that we're trying to share.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I was hoping to touch on next. I think we have a clear example of a very touching story here, like a very human story, a lot of emotion here. And I'm just wondering, are there any other stories from the design of the whole set, not necessarily connected to the exact cards that we're about to talk about, but just any stories from behind the scenes that
2: it really would make sense to tell while we're talking about Midnight Sun? I think what I want to share, and this is at least like somewhat related to the cards that we have to talk about, as well as the larger set. So, like I said, this is the first set that I've done design work on. But my like primary role was in development, and so a lot of my experiences here had to do with you know really refining these things and learning a lot about the sort of like interconnection that you can really create, both the complexity of that, but also the ways that that can pay out. And so we've had like a couple of different mechanics on the runner side. I'll say that like have had very different trajectories that have both kind of you know started Mm -hmm. off in a way and landed somewhere that i think i'm really satisfied with and proud of so like criminal actually started off with a completely different keyword mechanic oh interesting Um, all of these have been based around the idea of sable's abilities as a pattern analyst the ability to you know see things that others don't or predict and we tried some or i would say dry mechanical information focused Mm -hmm. implementations and eventually. After a while with that, we just kind of determined they may have captured that theme in a on-paper similarities way, but they didn't capture much of a feeling. And so when we pivoted to the mark mechanic, a lot of it was perceived something that was more active, more interactive, and immediately drove interesting decisions from both players. Charge, on the other hand, our shaper mechanic, um, the mechanic, the keyword has not changed at all <laughs> since we started it's just one of those things where it's just like this is an exceptionally simple concept that core thing not only has it not changed but there are big limits to what you can even do in terms of changing the core keyword there aren't that many variables to tweak right but there are a lot on every card that uses it and this is definitely one of those that like when i talk about fast interconnection of different individual pieces we definitely had some times Earlier in the testing of charge, we had to figure out what effects were reasonable and what effects were absurd when we haven't had to ask ourselves, like, what is the click value or the credit value of a power counter in X, Y, and Z context?
0: Yeah. And what happens when you can put a power counter on a card that was never supposed to get a power counter
2: after you installed it? <laughs> Absolutely, and this definitely creates some interesting things about it. Although there does have to be a power counter already on the card for you to charge right. it. If you're trying to to um, skirt around those limitations, you at least have a little bit of a time sensitive window for it. And definitely, like we found, you know, there are some ways of charging that have worked great, have been really exciting, and there were a couple forms of charge, usually ones that were a bit too like widespread, mm-hmm. that we really had to rein in. Yeah, this is another thing that we have to think about whenever we print power counters. Yeah. And on the one hand, that is a bit more work. But on the other hand, it gives power counters an identity that is very distinct from virus counters, but goes beyond their previous identity of doing nothing special with them. Rather than having tower that will topple, we more have, you know, the fuel tank you need to keep filled.
0: Can I point out something incredible for Eternal players? If you find a way to charge the black file every turn, the corp can never win the game. It does rotate with Borealis, though.
1: I I was (laughs) going to talk about a different Mumbad card. I was about to say, you know, charging Temple of the Liberated Mind sounds pretty lit. Chatter G
2: sounds (laughs) legit too, you know? Uh, All of these rotate though, so. Yeah, Yeah, they all rotate. Honestly, at least like for my personal design philosophy, because again, I wasn't there at the beginning of Borealis being established. I was in playtest and then in dev, but in my subsequent design efforts, like one of the first things we do is we take a look at the like landscape of rotation. Because like on the one hand, like that is like, oh, we're losing X, Y, and Z cards that fulfill like essential metagame functions. And we need to think about- the impact of losing those and what we can achieve by introducing different kinds of tools in that same general space. Um, but there's also things like this, where that there's exciting design space that we want to dive into that has to wait until certain things are out of the pool. And like uh, format like eternal, of course, you know, will have its own balancing considerations. But the general philosophy of eternal is at least like let's try the strong stuff, let's try the strong interactions. This mm-hmm. is where that stuff should be going down, and we have plenty of balancing tools available. Because it's like one of those things, it's like, yeah, you could probably do that in Eternal, and everyone else is probably doing something so much more broken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. That or that's broken already, it's fine, it's fine! <laughs> but no, like, your inconsistent attempts to stall compared to people just, like, exploding you. Yeah, notably, yeah. Uh,
1: Blackfile <laughs> does not keep you from getting shot in the face. So Exactly. Uh, that's fair. You can still rewire brains, right? You can still rewire brains. You can still, if the runner ever runs, you can still
2: get nuked by 14 meat damage from orbit, all of that stuff. That's super cool for a format that is defined by extreme interactions. And also, that's not consistent with our vision for standard.
0: Yeah. We're losing the thread here. So we were oh, talking
1: about yeah. Boreal's stories this might be a sign that we should switch over to talk about the actual cards. What do you think?
0: I do think that you're right, Pants. I think that our audience might be grabbing the torches and the Haley Pitchforks. Torch um, rotated, didn't it? Yeah, torch rotated, that's, and so did That's Haley. really bad. They're reaching uh, so, out of
1: rotation just because we're not yeah, getting to the yeah. scoops.
0: So they're bringing back Pitchfork, the Haley deck. Not, you know, the three-ponged thing to stab you with. But uh, anyway, we promised them scoops, and we have not yet delivered scoops. Well, you know what else we haven't delivered, Josh?
1: Akamatsu Memchip. You think
0: this is a coincidence? Absolutely not. You're supposed to say Uh, Wait. (laughs) Yes, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Not the feet.
1: All right, fine. We can do the scoops, and we don't have to do Akamatsu Memchip for the scoops. However, I do have some news to deliver to you, Josh. News that you might not take well.
0: Okay, what's this? I, I already pre-don't approve. The cards we have to talk about today,
1: they're Shaper cards.
0: No! Oh, cut the feed.
1: So I guess it's only fitting that today for our Scoops segment, we have the Fuck Shaper segment. Shaper. Uh, In, in all seriousness, Which, we do have we do have some shaper courts to talk about today. I'm not going to spoil what we think about them. Actually, listen to us talk about them rather than just listening to what we just told you to listen to.
0: Just real quick here, mostly tongue in cheek. Yeah. We don't like the period of the game where there was this the Haley install everything build the up lock decks. shapers. Yeah,
2: the, like the lock shapers that didn't actually run. But we don't actually hate shaper. I'll say I'm not in the fuck Shaper camp or anything like that, but Shaper is the most difficult faction for me personally yeah. to design for. And definitely a lot of the things that are really exciting about Shaper are less associated with the, like, La period and are more associated with, I don't know, old school, more aggressive Shaper things. Yeah. Stuff like prepaid Kate and Catman. Oh,
0: yeah, that's my jam. I,
1: I think we kind of see that in the cards we have here. <laughs> Let's dive right into it, I guess. Let's go ahead and start with the card Propeller. I'll take this one, you take the next one, et cetera. So Propeller is a program. It is an icebreaker. It is a fractor. It costs... Let me make sure I'm reading this sheet correctly. These columns are very narrow. One sec. Let me me change this so I can actually read the spreadsheet. Oh, no, I don't have edit access. All right, well... (laughs) One to install. Yeah, Propeller has a cost of one. It is a two-influence card. It has a strength of zero, and it's one MU. And... Its rules text is, when you install this program, place four power counters on it. Interface, one credit to break one subroutine on barriers, and then you can spend one hosted power counter for plus two strength. What do you think, Josh?
0: Uh, I think that this is good. It's like, so you know what it strikes me as at first? Like an Inti replacement.
1: Yeah, right. It's like Inti in the sense of, There is a very limited number of times that I actually want to boost its strength over the course of the game, but it's real cheap if you just need to break Mm -hmm. the Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you get basically plus eight strength from power counters the whole game, unless you're charging it. This is a pretty nice payoff for charge. You get a one cost barrier breaker that's one for one subroutine. And if you never have to spend actual money to boost the strength, this is a pretty good payoff. And obviously, you can run multiples of these, and you don't have to rely on just recharging a single one throughout the game. But in some ways, it's a mix between Inti and Lady, right? That's definitely
2: how I would put it. At first glance, this card looks like Lady. You think about what situations it's best in, and it definitely feels more like that Inti, like, you know, cheap install, Gear Shet Buster. Yeah. But then compared to Lady, I feel like you have a lot more available lines for next steps than just you would like, you know, reinstall Lady when you need more counters isn't that good enough but with propeller you have a lot of different options you can you can do like a leech type situation if you want to be yeah. able to get more efficiency out of propeller you can keep charging it to keep going and if you have a lot of charge that can actually start to pose a real threat and unlike virus counters you're not going to you know, you're just get wiped by the fork yeah. get too far accumulated with it mm-hmm. that's really cool i'm Shit, what was I
1: going to say? Oh, right. Unlike Lady, Lady had the weakness of, if you're just up against a vanilla, there is a very limited number of times that you get to break through that vanilla. As opposed to Propeller, if you're just up against vanilla, you can always pay one credit, where you're limited is getting the strength.
0: So I do have a question on this card, and I want to point out something to the listeners, because this card is actually way more interesting than I gave it credit for at first glance. Um, my question was, is the purpose of this card kind of to incentivize Charge, including some Charge cards, to sort of like drive home the mechanic?
2: I mean, it's definitely one of the ways of like making Charge intersect with a core like axis of interaction in the game. And it's also one of those things where it's like, there are other things with Charge where timing might be pretty crucial or whatever. But if you just like, you know, stack up a few extra counters on your propeller, then you've got an insurance policy against, you know, mm-hmm. Braun or Eli later. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, yeah. so not specifically designed to interact with charge, it
2: does as a link. Yeah, I mean, like, it's of course designed to interact with charge and that it has power counters on it and that you can use charge yeah. to keep yeah. it going.
0: Mm-hmm. So one of the other things that's interesting that I want to point out about this card is really great, and I think that this is great as a card that's a support card for charge, but also doesn't have to be, is there's another big end card called Rejig that I think works quite well with mm-hmm. propeller in the same way that um, what was the card called that was in Kate scavenge. So you have that scavenge sort of ability on this card and a real big reason to actually want to have scavenge in your deck because that just solves barriers, right? Mm-hmm. But also it works with symbol chip. Mm -hmm. so you can recharge it with simul chip as well it works with the charge mechanic and leech and it just seems that there are so many options with this card synergies exist
2: around the card so you could use it in so many ways Um, this card is in this expansion because of the linked charge Mm -hmm. but this card is not limited to its connections to charge yeah
0: yeah I got to give props there because that's like a really cool design aspect of it. As far as one of the pieces of design that I like the most when it comes to card games, I love extraneous synergies. Just love them because then I get to think about how I'm going to use it in my deck.
2: Yeah, we want to make sure that the people who would rather have the experience of a big old tub of Legos rather than a Lego kit mm-hmm. can have that out of the
1: deck building experience. Mm-hmm. This is a Lego that goes with a lot of other Legos and can end up in a rocket ship. It can also end up in a house. So for sure. So one last piece of this that I want to make sure I talk about is the art. Just from looking at this, this is cat, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, this is cat. Shen. This is really cool art. I really like this.
0: Yeah, it shows a propeller with swirls around it that appear to be breaking up some sort of digital space around the propeller.
1: Yeah, and a quick shout out for anyone listening to this who's wondering like, oh man, this art sounds cool. Where can I see it? Make sure you check the text notes underneath the episode. We'll have a link to an imager gallery where you can see the art for all of these cards.
2: Oh, perfect. Because yeah, this art looks great. And so similar to what we did for System Gateway, we do have specific artists defining net space for specific factions. I love this because I feel like it really like plays into the subjective nature of one's own experience jacking in. Mm -hmm. I do have a little bit of
0: insight on that because I was involved in the art team during this set. One of Matt's goals with the art on the set was to have a consistent feel per faction for Netspace. And so very pointedly, Matt, what he did was he took cards and he assigned them to specific artists that he thought would be really good at Netspace. Mm. and kind of locked key cards to that artist to get a consistent flavor across them. I think that was a great strategy, to be honest. I really am impressed with some of the stuff that we got back because of Matt's direction.
1: It's a very good art on the set. I agree.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Anyway, let's move on to the next thing. Do you want to go through Into the Depths next?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's just move on through the list as we got it. So we have Into the Depths. This is a run event, cost one, influence three, and the text is, run any server. If successful, for each time you pass an ice this run, resolve one of the following that you have not yet resolved this run. Bullet point one, gain four. Bullet point two, search your stack for a program. Install it, shuffle your stack after searching it. Bullet point three, charge one of your installed cards. And charge is, as we've seen spoiled in other articles and so on and so forth, add one power counter to a card that already has one. End of list. What do you think of this one, Pants? Actually,
1: I wanted to hear from Zoe on this first, because there are definitely some similarities to a card that you called out as a favorite, Bravado. You can kind of look at this, and if you squint at it, you say, like, this looks a
2: little bit like a green Bravado. I'm curious your thoughts here. I think that's definitely an aspect of it, and part of what we wanted to do for this was is to make this feel pretty darn shaper. And part of that is the sort of toolboxy nature. If we break this down, the first two effects we have here, we basically have dirty laundry yep. and uh, we have SMC. Mm-hmm. And then we have the uh, charge mechanic as well. And it's one of those things also, if you read those down in order, you have the optimal sequence for a lot of situations pointed out for you. You money up so that you can afford to install the thing, you track it down, and then you give an extra, you know, a little something with a charge if you're able to get past three eyes.
1: Mm-hmm. This is a really cool card. The reason it reminds me of Bravado the most is Bravado, like, obviously, that's a card that you throw out in a bunch of situations. You throw it out early to test servers, you throw it out mid-game just to keep you in money as you go. But it reminds me a lot of the mid-game to late-game uses of Bravado, where You're using it to gain value to make it so that the next time you run isn't as far away. I see that as a potential use for this card. Yeah, I know I need to run the remote. Why not make a little money and search out a useful program while I'm doing it?
2: Absolutely, and
1: kind of keep the game moving
2: forward through this conflict.
1: Yeah, I can definitely see this enabling some shenanigans because you know, you use your propeller counters getting through, but now you have propeller counters back so you can get back through. And it's sooner than the corp expects you to be able to and all of that.
2: Yeah, and so I'd say like the raw value on this and the like guaranteed upside on this are both lower than Bravado. Yeah. But Bravado doesn't give you these kind of skateboard tricks. Right. Bravado can't get an imp. Yeah. Right before the access yes. window. So that's what I was going
0: to point out is uh, the skateboard tricks that this gives you are incredible And you can almost even, I would say, use this with imp as sort of like a stim hack because not only are you gaining some of your money back, you're potentially installing an imp before the access step and then you're getting to trash a high value card. And then Mm -hmm. on top of that, well, you can't charge the imp because that's viri counters, right? But you can maybe, if you are a deck using power counters, charge another card. So you're getting value off the run and then being able to trash something against a CTM, which is a fantastic. It almost doesn't feel Shaper. I mean, yeah,
1: like this is the second Shaper card here in the fuck Shaper segment that I look at it and I'm like, I don't know. This actually seems pretty fun to play, which <laughs> I have to be completely honest. That's pretty fucked up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what, what are y'all doing right now? What the fuck? <laughs> you got
2: some Shaper in my Anarch. I mean, to answer this goof in maybe a little bit more of a serious way, I think that we do have a bit of a different philosophy than FFG did in terms of faction Mm -hmm. balance and are less rigid about what you can do and this is your server and are more about what does it look like for each faction to approach these basic things you do with the game. Mm -hmm. The hope there is it's not going to feel so much like Essential tools that everybody needs are kind of locked into those certain places and have it much more be like, there are variations in these different tools, those and the value you're going to be able to get out of them has to do with you as a player and what speaks to you, what works with your brain. Honestly, one of the big barriers that I've had to
1: playing Shaper in the period that I've been active in the game is a lot of times it didn't reward running early, whereas this is a really big reward for running early that feels
0: like a lot of what Anarch does when you run early. I mean, this card seems to me like it's one of those cards where it's good if you run early, late or mid game because it's one, two or three ice, three ice, obviously for maximum value. But you're right. You put down an SMC, you run this and then you gain the four paid for your SMC plus two credits So whatever you're going to install. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. And then it's just gravy after that. If you need something mid game or you need to install something right away. Yeah, I actually really like this card. <laughs> What I'm interested in with this card is like how much of a staple in the shape or faction it might become. If it is going to be that, or if it's going to be something you include like two of or one of even. Yeah. I agree with you. I think part of that's going to be exactly what the payoffs are.
1: Very clear value. If the payoffs are things like repeller. And I think a Mm -hmm. card that's already spoiled endurance. That's a pretty good one to get some power counters on. It's one half of two subroutines for every power counter you get on that. But I'm also curious, like, is there going to be a way to trade power counters for cash? Because if there is, then this could literally just become money in the bank, which is a pretty good reward for running because it helps you run. Mm -hmm. We probably should briefly discuss the art for Into the Depths. We talked a little bit with Matt, and I think the only reason that it might not be a very clear visual reference to another Netrunner card is because the card that it is a visual reference of is not a card that's probably first on most people's minds. Uh, That's the card Satellite Uplink. I think the way Matt described it to us was, yeah, you know, Satellite Uplink has really good art, which sucks because it's a terrible card. I just said, what if we took the Satellite Uplink art and put it on a good card instead (laughs) and put it in the ocean? (laughs) Yep, that's
2: exactly the conversation. No, this is definitely a riff on that. And it's really nice to both be able to like, give like a cheeky little callback, but also do something that demonstrates the wonderful ways that we've been able to learn from the vast history of this game.
1: Yeah. And it's little details in this too. The fact that specifically tapping into HB pipelines or data, Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what cables are here, but the fact that it's specifically tapping into HB, that's pretty cool. Overall, very cool art. Again, you're probably going to hear that with all of the ones here because they've all got cool art, but you know, take a look at the art. You should. It's good. In my opinion, the best is yet to come. I 100% agree on that. That doesn't discount how good the art's been so far. It's just I think no, we do have stunning, a very but... powerful one to see in a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But before we get to that, I'd like to jump to the next one, which is Stoneship Room. I was curious what Stoneship meant here. Is that a nautical term? Turns out that is a Mist
2: reference, which went completely over my head because I've never actually played Mist. Well, and the hope here is that, you know, you don't feel like you've lost anything by not having that context to begin with, but that it can still enrich your experience as you start to yeah. do some research. That's kind yeah, of a sweet so... spot that we want to hit with a lot of these things. Yeah, I think this absolutely does that. Because if I didn't know that,
1: I would think like, oh, Ship." I don't oh, know, is that the name of like someone's ship? Yeah, sure. And like would have moved on
0: with my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or even it could be like a nickname for the Endurance, because sometimes... Uh. Like the USS Constitution, for instance, was called Old Ironsides. That's not the name of the ship, but it is a nickname for the ship. So it's almost—if you don't get the reference, it could still tie in thematically in a really fun way. Old Stone Sides, yeah.
1: So uh, Old Stone Sides is a resource location. It is zero to install, one influence. And its rules text is, you can trash this resource to draw two cards, or you can trash this resource to charge an installed card.
0: So we're just making Geist better in internal?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess that wasn't my initial thought seeing this, though. I mean, obviously, I'm thinking primarily of standard when I look at this. This is just a nice little utility card. Absolute worst case scenario, it's almost a diesel. But the fact that it's instant speed is relevant here you get a program with an SMC and then you charge it mid-run and suddenly you have the ability to do something mid-run you didn't have the ability to do earlier.
2: Yeah, I feel like it's also one of those things you can like keep this for those situations. And then when you realize the fork is trying to murder you, this becomes a safety tool, not the most reliable one necessarily, Uh but one that has a lot of other utility. While it looks simple or even dry on its face, I feel like just the actual experience of playing it, it can smooth things out with a counter or a draw when you're, like, trying to set up. Or it can be a really flush defensive option.
1: The fact that it's instant speed draw, too. I mean, part of why Geist was so hard to kill was he was able to draw. Being able to draw two cards on the corpse turn makes Boom not lethal. And this does that same thing if you're at five cards.
2: Yeah, and I will say it is a dangerous world out there for runners. So having a way to pack some protection that also, you know, has function in other matchups. Yeah.
0: I will also point out that it's not unique. So say you need to run through some data loops, right? Ooh. <laughs> you can oh. install three of these, right? You have enough cards to get through a data loop and a Chicago, and then... You pop three stone ships and suddenly you got six cards to steal that avocado.
1: <laughs> like, you get to draw the same two cards
0: so many times that turn, right? Right. Well, the thing is, data loop doesn't do anything if you have no cards in hand. So basically, you go past the data loop and you're like, eh, okay, whatever. So, and then you pop three of these, and that Obacata's is mine now. Thank you. <laughs> like. It seems innocuous, but like it not being unique is actually like really relevant, like really relevant for fighting against those Shinteki decks. I think
1: it's relevant for another reason. I have what I think is potentially a spicy take on this card. I don't think we have the cards for it today, but I'm pretty sure at some point in the future, this is going to be an important card for a combo deck. I don't know if it's going to be a three of in that combo deck, but just the ability to charge a card at instant speed and you can bank the click you spent doing that on a previous turn. Think of a card like upya Obviously, that has to get a charge counter on it to begin with, but you can imagine a situation. Maybe there's a card like that in the future, and the fact that you can just suddenly throw two extra charge counters on it means that suddenly you have the extra click you need to do your combo. I'm fairly confident that there's going to be some combo in the future that Stoneship Room being able to charge is an important part of it.
2: I feel like it's also one of those things where like, Its ability to cycle itself also makes it nice for a combo deck. I don't know what this scenario is, but imagining that this is a scenario where you need two of these, you can use the third one to accelerate your setup. True. Yeah, that's very true.
0: You can also turn this into a, what is it, build script? By having a Reaver installed. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good point. That's a terrible synergy.
1: (laughs) Doesn't doesn't that turn it into
0: a diesel? Because doesn't Reaver draw you cards? No, Reaver oh. gives you uh, credit, doesn't it? Was no, wasteland. wasteland. Yeah, you're right. It yeah. turns into a diesel. Huh. your own
2: diesel. Is, uh... Oh, if you have both,
0: you get better
2: diesel. <laughs> yeah.
0: Apex <And> support. Yeah!
2: <laughs> uh, oh, it's, it's, it's not, not virtual. This yeah. Is a, yeah, this is just location.
1: Uh, Always dashing the, the, my Apex dreams. On that note, though, you know, guys, support and such. This is one influence. Like, that's another thing that's important to remember is... This is an easy card to slot a couple of in your deck if you need it.
0: I'm interested in seeing, like, especially in the future, if this card gets slotted out of faction, I do think if there's anything like Geist that ever appears again that gets value off of Trashing, you are going to see this card in that deck for sure. Because once you get an extra card and like a credit off of this, it's incredible. As it is, it just cycles itself, which is like fine, and if you need to do the tricks with Obacata, like, that's fine. Mm-hmm. And if you need to charge something mid-run, that's fine. Sure. But as soon as it gets any more value than that, this card becomes incredible. It's sort of like Fall Guy. Fall Guy by itself was fine, but once you had three terrators on the table, Fall Guy was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, there's one thing I gotta say about all three cards so far. I'm interested to see where they go. Agreed. And one of the Props I have to give to design is even the cards that seem a little innocuous or like a little vanilla, they do have interesting direction that could be taken with additional support. And before we get into the next card, I got to ask, like, is that kind of a goal? Is it OK? Well, we need a couple of cards in here that are sort of uh, what does magic call those bears 2 two card for two, right? It's not that interesting. It doesn't do a whole lot. But are you trying to create bears that? could eventually with the right support become
2: something i feel like bears is a really difficult comparison to make in some ways when i Mm. think about bears i think about the periods of time and not all of these or not all of the cards in them have always made it to production but the times that we've done like fairly straightforward like cycles of ice for example especially since ice is an area of the game where we're trying to pull back on complexity just a little bit so that it is easier to look at a run and understand what's going to happen
0: Mm-hmm.
2: but I would say that this set pushes the envelope in a way that Ashes and Gateway really didn't. This is, I would say, a more experimental set, one with more kind of open-ended questions, more powerful tools to be respected, and just in general, a situation where things do have more points of synergy, and also you're going to need them.
0: <laughs> nice. Love that. Should okay. we
1: switch over? Should we talk about the Anarch card that we have to discuss?
0: The Anarch card, yes, why I would love to. So this one is called The Twinning. Super. It is a resource, virtual, three influence, three cost. And it says on it, the first time each turn you spend credits from an installed card, place one power counter on this resource. Whenever you breach HQ or R&D, you may remove up to two hosted power counters to access that many additional cards. I think they got some shaper in your Anarch there. The main
1: problem with this is it requires you to install a second card, which I don't know about that. (laughs) In all seriousness, this is a card that I think pretty easily slots into decks because Paladin Puemu Mm -hmm. is already a really, really strong engine. And Paladin Puemu alone makes this pretty good. If you're able to squeeze in another companion that also drips money and you're able to use regularly, obviously this can potentially become relatively insane. It probably leads to some interesting, like, you know, maybe you leave one credit left on Paladin Puemu instead of spending all of the money because you want to be able to spend one additional credit the next turn or something like that, or, you know, try to find ways to install cards on the Corp turn or, or things like that just to get extra counters, but... The power level is definitely here. The only thing that could potentially hold this card back, I think, is the three cost.
0: I think that you're right, but I think that also if you're dripping in money from Paladin, it doesn't feel like real money. Yeah. And as soon as you get to two or three money on that card, especially if you have like a Kiko out where you get paid back for spending those credits, the three cost almost becomes not really an issue on this. And I'm wondering actually if this card makes what I call the super friends deck. (laughs) <laughs> finally viable mm-hmm. which is basically you take a 1x of all of the companions and just yeah if i get it during the game fine if i don't fine but you have options there and since they're all unique if you only take 1x of each like you're not getting flooded by cards that are going to be useless that you can't install and i think most of them cost 2 or less to install i think Kuemo's mm-hmm. the only one that costs more than 1 right i don't know that for sure we don't have i don't i don't
1: remember completely offhand an obvious point of comparison is turning wheel oh yeah for sure it has the do thing gain counters add accesses for spending counters obviously one difference is turning wheel you had to do the thing twice you had to get two counters for an additional card it's balanced differently a single counter becomes a single extra card but also you can't i don't know one of the frustrating things about Turning Wheel, both as someone playing with it and as someone playing against it, was a lot of times the game came down to, all right, I'm just going to faceplant into your servers a bunch of times throughout the whole game, and then eventually I'm going to access seven cards and win. And we're both going to hate the entire time between now and then. This really, like, you're only able to access up to two additional cards, so it rewards and it really requires actually spending those resources throughout the game. Wait, hold on. Yeah. These are these this are power counters. Kind of-
2: <laughs> Ooh. I did not realize that. Uh-huh. I feel like you're gonna have that moment a lot, this expansion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's but, all right, that's fun. I like that. <laughs> this was honestly such a fascinating one for a design perspective because like we want to give more support to the companions engine. And also we found that the companions engine can be a little bit passive. We found that uh You can sit back, get a bunch of free shit and, you know, threaten at your leisure if you want to go that way. And we think that the engine is really cool. And we think that that play pattern is not the coolest way that could exist. Mm -hmm. So wanting to give it a boost, but wanting to give it also a push in the direction we want. And so this is one that emphasizes turning that install runner into aggression and the cap of two additional accesses. I mean, it's not just there to keep this under control. But it's also there to say, hey, if you want to get your value out of this, you need to be interacting regularly. Yeah. And so yeah, trying to like throw something, you know, really substantial to that archetype, but demand interaction and in exchange. Yeah. That's good. I
1: mean, exactly what you said has always been my problem with the companions personally, is it felt like you would just install them and then okay, what do you do now? And this finally gives you a reason to do something else.
2: Yeah. So I'm really excited to see how that affects that archetype. I love this card. Everything from the mechanics to the theming to the illustration. Bringing up the illustration, I don't
1: know if we've talked about maybe the most striking parts of the card, which are not the rules text.
2: Yeah, so for those of you yeah. who haven't got the visual yet, the twinning refers to the crystal formation phenomenon, not the fashion decision nor the sexual fetish. I didn't even know that those were things. Uh, I, I, okay. I knew the fashion one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the ThirstCast. Cast. <laughs> Wait, was that too far? No, no. For this show? Please.
1: <laughs> please.
0: We've, I have please. been far thirstier we've, on this we've show, done please,
1: worse please! <laughs> we have done much worse things.
0: No, um, you so- offend me!
1: You offend me! That's a fake.
2: So what exactly is crystal twinning in that case? It's the formation that we see illustrated where two separate crystals form out of the same and then just kind of split. You can see a fantastic illustration of this here. You see the crystal formation in question, but it's also connected to this beautiful, uh, what's the word? Honestly, explosion of green, of nature, Mm -hmm. of plants and flowers, but surrounded and beset on every side by the most fucked up looking industrial
1: (laughs) equipment. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the things that I love about it is exactly how grim and... I, it, like And it's so obvious just from looking at it. The drill, the buzz saw, the chainsaw, it's all so visceral. You know, it, it feels
2: like horror movie on the outskirts here. Absolutely. Although I also have to say everything going on around on the outside of there, I'm just like, hmm, that would be sick for my Gaslands models. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I really do think
0: that
1: the art is one of the most striking things about this entire card. I think that this is not just unique art for this set. I think this is unique art for the game of Netrunner as a whole. I can't remember a single piece of art that looks like this in the entire game.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think we definitely do something here with color that we've never really done before. I think that also the way in which this is interpreted is a bit different from our usual like Netspace psychedelica. Yeah. And it just creates this... I look at this and I know exactly what he says about... Yeah. Mm -hmm. And
1: that's an important thing. This is not a Netspace illustration, right? This is not Netspace we're seeing here.
2: So this is a virtual resource. But what I would say is that this looks at least to me less like conventional Netspace. And it's not done in a style that's uh, exactly consistent with the other Netspace cards. I would say this definitely is a like, this is a figurative illustration. Again, I think that's unique. I can't remember Mm -hmm. an example of that
1: in Netrunner in the past.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that there are some that are arguably interpretable that way. And there's some mm-hmm. of the most memorable, like Rebirth hits me as one. That, oh, like, it's you know, yeah. not immediately clear whether it is net space or metaphor. And yeah. I mean, that is one of my favorite pieces of art in the game. That's a good point. I had forgotten
1: the art of rebirth, which is ridiculous because of how many times I've played that card. But I think that that's the closest
2: comparison I can think of. Rebirth, you have a moment of looking and trying to understand that gets you there. This hits immediately Yeah, it's just, like, nothing you've seen.
0: Yeah. So, we actually do have a note from Morgan here, which was... So, Morgan says, the twinning has a very weird thematic origin. Also, it's a huge success for just trying to be really adventurous and different. Because one important thing to note is that it isn't depicting either meat or net space but rather an abstract mental image. And Morgan goes on to say, at one point, Issa views nature and humanity as inherently linked, you know, thus the twinning. The damage to nature will diminish humanity as well. To preserve one, the other must also be
2: saved. Yep. And this is paired with the flavor text. All is folding back, ever back, together as one. Good flavor text. (laughs) Very good flavor text there.
0: Oh, that's high praise right there. We're talking about uh, Mr. <laughs> flavor Text is bad or good.
1: I've literally written one article about Flavor Text and people <laughs> say this about me. Another thing that we got from Morgan, which I think is just as important to mention is it's also a silly Final Fantasy XIV reference. Wait, what? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Where Apparently it is. I It's in this group theme somewhere. I don't know anything about Final Fantasy XIV other than it is a Final Fantasy. I feel that that's important to mention. I found the paragraph. Here we go. Okay. Then there's also just me making a silly Final Fantasy 14 reference, lol. Except that reference is also connected to the same themes. Fuck yeah, boy! <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's just patting yourself on the back way too hard. They're gonna break their arm off if they keep doing that. Can you
2: blame them though? <laughs> I can't. Uh, I love this card, uh, and it's definitely the spot we're trying to hit for references, like not being familiar with that franchise, I don't feel like anything is lost here. This piece hits super hard. And yeah. also I know that there's people out there that's going to make them smile.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I got to say of all of the art that I've seen, which um, is all of it, but this is like one of the most striking arts in the set to me. I love everything about this piece of art from the fact that the central piece of it is in full, unbridled, detailed color, down to the fact that there are different colors of flowers and there are different blades of grass. There's a refraction in the crystal, all sorts of stuff. There's more the more you look. But the fact that it's also ringed by these black and white industrial tools, there is no color in those. Mm. Nothing. And then it's all kind of like spaced out between each other, between the black and white tools and the crystal with this like ring of white. The card is very striking, especially with the green being this contrast to the Anarch frame. Just everything about it works. One of the things that's really cool is you'll notice on the edges of the images, there's actually leaves on some of those industrial tools, adding a little bit of green over top, say the buzzsaw and the uh, chainsaw. And what those leaves show on top of those uh, equipment is that it's not an unfinished piece. Those are not black and white because the artist decided not to color them. They're black and white as a thematic choice to the card and the feeling that it's trying to represent. I don't know if that's a long-winded way to say that this is just its really good. I really like this art and I cannot wait to see this on the table. I think it's going to be played a lot, but I've been wrong before.
2: But no, I'm completely with you. And like the closer I look at this illustration and the more, the more really like awestruck I am. Cause yeah, you talked about those leaves there. There's also in the far bottom left, at a couple of the edges, honestly, this bloody red. Yeah. And it's subtle, but it's this intense color. Oh, contrast. I see so.
0: it now. Mm-hmm. Oh, that might be a cut off on the card, but I do see it. We'll definitely
1: include the full art in the Imgur link, but someone should probably see if we can get this art on something that isn't just a card. Like, (laughs) this is really good.
0: Hmm, I wonder who can do that. I think it rhymes with Snorvelsmangent. Um, hmm. I think that guy makes playmats. (laughs)
2: What a strange (laughs) choice of rhyme.
0: What the (laughs) I don't know, it's the first thing that came to my head. Fuck.
1: That's Um, psychologically revealing. uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Um... So, like, is there anything more that we want to say about this card, though? I don't know if we explicitly said this. It's unique. Yeah, that is important. Yep. (laughs) Honestly, like, all of these cards I'm excited to see. We've got a good set of four cards here. (sighs) Despite the name of the segment, I have to say I'm, like, genuinely excited about all of these cards and could see myself playing all of them.
0: I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Like I said, this is a bit of a Reese's scenario. There's so much Anarch and Shaper now, and so much
2: Shaper and Anarch. You know, Pants is going to have a trouble choosing. My hope is that like these things still produce gameplay experiences that feel distinct from each other, but that you don't feel like, oh, if I want to be able to interact on X or Y axis, I absolutely have to be in this or that faction. It doesn't seem that way at all. Rather, I should say it
1: doesn't seem like I'm being forced to pick one particular faction to be able to interact in a certain way in general. Like you said, Into the Depths, I think, is a great example here. It really does feel like it's going to give solid rewards for interaction that are worth playing the card and worth, honestly, potentially worth playing the faction for. Mm-hmm. But they're going to feel and act very different from how they would if mm-hmm. it were an NR card. So this is very cool. It's so exciting to finally see these cards and finally see like what's going to happen to the game. One last thought on like gameplay here is when this set does release, a lot of cards that are pretty important are going to rotate out. Ordering chaos is going to go. Mumbad cycle is going to go like we talked about (laughs) the turning wheel is going to go. If you want the turning wheel type effect, the twinning is going to be the closest replacement that we know about. So some cards are going to rotate and we'll have space to explore some of these new things. Yeah.
0: I'm excited to play games with these. For sure. Same. And I'm so glad to hear it. So Just a couple of more pieces of business. One more thing that we have to do before we get out of here, or we would be remiss. Mm -hmm. As we said, those hordes of Netrunner players that would come after us with Haley Pitchforks, they would do that. And we would definitely not be on their fan sites. We would definitely be getting uh, trashed. Much like Goliath, we would be getting slain by David. Indeed. So anyway... One of our classic segments honestly takes the longest. The rest of the episode is a small little tidbit in comparison. We really get into the tournament deep dives on this. We really discuss all the ins and outs. And on this episode, uh,
1: we're going to have to obviously address the relationship to new cards.
0: Oh, absolutely. So it's time for, you know it, you love it, Ban or Nap? And Zoe, if you're unaware of how banner nab works, is we have you pick a card and then we say whether we are going to ban that card or keep it in the meta, aka Nabit. And what card have you chosen for us?
2: So I have chosen the initially delicious sounding until you realize that's not how it's pronounced on Ginger City Grid. This is a card that I have thought a lot about, have really deep feelings about, both as a player, as a designer, and I'm just really excited to dig into it. Okay, then. So, Jinja City Grid, ban or nap? Ban. Ban.
0: Ban.
1: Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for ban or nap today. We have to move on to the outro. So, this has been an excellent episode. If you think that this was an excellent episode, what I recommend doing is following this podcast. You should be able to do that from basically anywhere that you get podcasts. We come up with content pretty regularly. This is like the 28th episode we've released or something like that. If you are interested in helping us show up to more people, a great way to do that is to give us a rating or to leave us a review. Obviously, another great way is to share it directly with people. I especially recommend that this week because we do have scoops. You probably know someone who wants to hear the scoops, so share the scoops with them. I want to make sure that we thank our special guests. So Zoe, thank you so much for coming on, talking with us about cards, about game design, about Netrunner, about Battles of the Bands. It has been fantastic having you on. Thanks. This has been so much fun. So glad to hear that. I'd like to give you the opportunity to give shout outs while you're here. Are there any shout outs you want to give? Netrunner related, not Netrunner related, whatever you want.
2: I think I want to give a shout out to... Um always be running they've got a new album coming out inspired by the music of borealis i've done exactly one illustration for this uh thing for midnight sun and it is also going to be the cover art i just recently got a chance to listen to a couple of the like work in progress drafts of the tracks and it's i'm so excited for that so want to throw some attention there
1: absolutely sure. we'll include a link you heard some excellent sci-fi inspirations earlier in the episode. We're also going to include information on those in the show notes. So if you are interested in learning and reading more of the stories that are inspiring some of the ways that the Midnight Sun came to be, we'll include more information on that in the show notes. I know I definitely got a few that I want to read, so be sure to check yeah, that sure. out as well.
0: Okay, hello everyone. This is Orbital Tangent. I wanted to take a quick second to remind you that there is a small thing coming up. It's just a little thing, intimate. Not a whole lot of people come. Just a little party called the World Championship of Netrunner. And just wanted to remind you that there are tickets available for that now. Also a block of hotels. It will be in Toronto, Canada you can get yourself a hotel room for 195 Canadian a night and tickets are on sale for $75 for the entire event, all three days. And uh, you can also get each individual event as its own ticket for $30. So if you're only going to go two of those three events, you can save yourself $15 by only booking two tickets. Just wanted to let you know, you can find more details at nisei.net and specifically go to the World Championship lodging and ticketing article.
1: When are the World
0: Championships? Probably important to mention that. <laughs> Oh, the World Championship is October 6th to October 10th. The actual events are the 7th, 8th, and 9th. However, if you block the entire time for the hotel, you are able to check in the night of the 6th and check out the morning of the 10th you can also shorten your stay if that is going to work better for you and i think with that we've reached the
1: end so if you have any questions or comments the best place to go is either me or josh the best place to reach us is pretty much anywhere you know we're in glc we're on stim slack we're on twitter we're on reddit uh just message one of us if you have any questions or comments but if you have any concerns we should probably go to the outro from there. And I
0: wonder if it's true. Do I suck like I
2: put the sock on you? Oh, there's mm-mm. great thoughts real quick before, yeah. I, I, before I get going. And I did not opt to plug this because the scope is far too local to be worth it. But um, I did have the brief thought of like, should I talk about the musical I'm going to be in? Um, I mean, like, I am... feel, feel free to plug it. Like we we, we can have this in. Like we, we can That's just a give lo- a caveat. A, well, we can well, give no, a caveat a, of, like it if is you're a literal local punk house production. But I am I am playing bass is in the band for or a punk musical of Gay Shrek.
1: What, what the fuck? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm totally into this. Okay. What? Okay, it's- I need to hear more. <laughs> um, I, honestly, I imagine that, like, you know, so there is some sort of post-collapse timeline where this is how we interact with film in general. But a bunch of punks who are used to putting on punk shows in their backyard are putting on a theater production in their backyard or of a queer punk retelling of Shrek. That is so cool. Um, I am part of a uh, four-person band who's going to be soundtracking this. <laughs> Highlights, inc- I love that. highlights include um, a sensual lounge version of All-Star. <laughs> and also, um, of course, Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah, which changes oh, halfway oh. through into Schallelujah.
1: Also, just a very different version of Hallelujah to begin with than the one yes. you get in Shrek. Oh, that's so All cool. All of which are wow. still very
2: different from the Leonard Cohen version.
1: 100%. Yeah, I... It's almost one of those like Rorschach questions you can ask people, like, you know, what's your favorite version of Hallelujah? And it says something about you. I don't know exactly what it says, but it says something. Yeah, I mean, I snap answer Leonard Cohen and probably just means therapy. Same. It used to be Buckley's, but I think I've really grown attached to
2: the vocal delivery from Leonard. He was a once in a lifetime kind of musician.
0: Yeah. (laughs) i'm just thinking of richard cheese now and a richard cheese version of of all-star <laughs> <Yes. laughs> so
1: i i guess like if, if if is is it worth us saying like if you're in this specific area then like check this out or i don't
2: think so i think if this okay. was like a real city in a production in a venue i would do this but this is a punk backyard in olympia washington so what
1: i'm hearing is we need to get this to a point where it is a show in like a large venue because the people need this i have never heard a show that people need more than a punk opera of gay shrek
2: my other favorite little detail about this is that so i i don't know i don't want to make any assumptions about y'all's lives but i'll make i'll start with the contextualizing information that lex is a ostensibly queer and especially lesbian dating app slash community board, but it is 90% shit posts, and part of that remaining 10% has been several ads for casting, through, etc. for gay Shrek, culminating in In Search of Box Mod Vape for Dragon Scene. Must produce fat clouds. <laughs> I love this.
0: (laughs) You just described like 99% of everything I am.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Like, if there's anything about this conversation that feels worth throwing in, go for it. It just does not not feel like that. This feels like a perfect
1: post-credits discussion to me. Like, (laughs) you've waited this long and now you get to hear about Gay Shrek. (laughs) This
0: is so good. (laughs) I didn't know I was waiting as long as I had. I've been waiting my entire life it turns out. Yeah, so so like so what's the rest of the episode? Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the
2: I, I'm I'm so excited for this absolutely ridiculous project. As, as you should be. <laughs> that sounds so fun. <laughs> is somebody going to tape this or or Ooh, no? I'm sure that some sort of mm-hmm. record of this will come into being. I don't know what the plans are. This is the Things are a little bit fast and loose. We're like uh, two weeks away from opening and tomorrow is going to be the band's first like actual rehearsal oh, wow. with like the cast. Mm. Like we've been doing stuff on our own. We've got uh, like our arrangements sorted, but I'll know a lot more about what this is actually going to be shaped like tomorrow. Nice. <laughs> if you want to let somebody
0: know, I will absolutely watch the bootleg. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
2: Okay. <laughs>
0: This, yeah. this is how it grows as a show. You,
1: you
2: have to get the bootleg and that's you know, move upward from there. Yeah. <laughs> I that's do have so much of a fascination with weird, like musical adaptations of films. I, there's a lot of them, but I love the weird ones. I don't know. Do y'all know about Evil Dead the musical? Just is this very weird little passion project that very unexpectedly made it to an off-Broadway run. Funny, it is disgusting. There is a splash zone. <laughs> So yeah, just like shit like that fascinates me. Yeah, it started in just like a bar in like, think a Midwest town and just kind of blew up. That's basically the plot of the movie Hamlet
1: 2, right? God, I haven't seen that. Actually, if I remember correctly with Hamlet 2, it's like, you know, a a high school drama teacher like writes Hamlet 2, in which the main characters are Hamlet and Jesus, who saves Hamlet via time travel but be, because of Jesus being a main character uh it like it becomes controversial and because of it becoming controversial it like makes it to off broadway or something like that that feels like a different timelines version of the producers yeah yeah actually yeah <laughs> they chose the wrong story to adapt they chose the wrong main characters they chose the wrong cast where did they go right yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I'm I'm getting some book recommendations from this. Where what I might ask is like, I, I might ask for a list of uh, books to include in the the write up to the episode in case people oh. are interested in what you're saying.
2: Absolutely. I yeah. And also, I think that's about as much time as I want to spend talking about sci-fi. I have notes about yeah. um, Imperial Ratch and Broken Earth, but uh, I don't know. if That could just keep going. I, I did. I did read the Broken Earth uh, series. That one, I liked that one a lot. Me too. I love that series so much. And like the context I brought up both of those in is just like how expert they are at examining power relationships across a bunch of different places, times, cultures. Yeah. And I don't know, the sum of that has been art that really informs how I see the world. Yeah. Plus, it's
1: just Ah. such a such a cool setting.
2: (laughs) God, it absolutely is. Like And also, just that opening line is absolute killer uh, and a great philosophy for a lot of sci-fi, I think. Uh, Let's start with the end of the world, shall we? Get it out of the way so we can move on to more interesting things.
0: (laughs) What book series is this? I need to read this if it starts like that.